Good morning. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food and all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing so on the seventh day he rested from all his work. And then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work for creating that he had done. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, no plant had sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. The Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed, nostril, breathed into the nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Thank you, Lord, for your word and inspiration. Thank you, Lori, and uh, thank you, band, as well. Uh, I want to say hello to all of you uh, here worshiping here. You know, we gather together here in the worship center, but also gather with uh, many of you at home, and some of you even who are traveling uh, are part of our worship today. And we're all part of the faith family, right? Today we're continuing our series, Don't Read the Bible. And of course, I say that tongue-in-cheek, but did you know that there are 52 nations in the world that restrict distributing Bibles? or where it's difficult even to find a Bible, or where it's extremely dangerous to be found with a Bible. In a dozen of those 52 countries, the only Bibles that, that they have are smuggled in. Let's pray for them, shall we? Good and kind Father, please pour out your favor on Jesus' people in these 52 countries many of whom cannot find a Bible, or if they have one, must, they must keep it well hidden. Bless those who are bringing them your word at great peril. Protect them. Prosper their work. Let your kingdom flourish in those nations despite the persecution and even because of it. And all God's people said, Amen. Well, this series, uh, I think, is really important for all of us, but especially for those of you who are young people 
uh, because you're going to face times when your faith is challenged. Uh, and it, it's going to be tested. I, you know, when I was in high school, I had an encounter with, with Jesus that, you know, forever uh, impacted my life. And then a couple years later in college, I found my faith challenged. And, and some of those challenges had to do with questions presented uh, with, from science. And, and I, didn't, I didn't know what to do with these questions. Does, for example, does, does a vast universe of galaxies mean that little old tiny Earth is not so special? Is evolution able to explain all life without God? Is the Earth really billions of years old? Well, today's message is this. Don't read the Bible unless you stop believing it's the enemy of science. You know, a number of, of notable scientists believe in the Bible. Among them is Dr. Francis Collins, uh, who until recently he was the head of the National Institutes of Health. And uh, before that, uh, he uh, was in charge of the Human Genome Project. And in between those times, he uh, launched an organization called BioLogos, dedicated to integrating science and Christian faith. And one of the Q&A uh, pages on the, on the BioLogos website, the question is, are science and Christianity at war? Well, here's a quote from that response. It says, science studies the natural world, not the supernatural. No amount of scientific testing or theorizing could prove or disprove the existence of a supernatural creator. And it also reminds us of this. It says the Bible is silent on most of the topics uh, that concern scientists, like protons, photosynthesis, penguins, and Pluto. It says the Bible is not a science book. Now, we can ask questions like, how long ago was the earth formed? And I would say, I don't know, I wasn't there. <laughs> You'd have to ask somebody who's older than dirt. Any volunteers out there? All right. Uh, today, I want to focus on one question as a way of addressing the conflict between the Bible and science and how to deal with it. The question is this, does the Bible tell us when the earth was created? Does, does Genesis give us reliable intel on the age of the earth. Now, one school of thought would say yes. Uh, you know, nearly 500 years ago, an Irish theologian in Dublin named James Usher made calculations using all of the generations in Genesis, and he, and he counted them back to compute when the world was created. And he came up with this, that it was created in 4004 B.C., October 2nd at 6 p.m., Whew. Talk about accuracy, huh? That, that would make the earth just shy of its 6,025th birthday. Or maybe that's when the Irish invented Guinness beer. I'm not sure. Something like that. Anyway, young earth creationists today make similar computations based on the Bible. And they come up with an earth that's a spry six to 10,000 years old. Now, obviously... 
that wouldn't be enough time for evolution to happen. So uh, instead, in, in, this, uh, in this line of thought, God spoke and it came into being. Uh, young Earth creationism is what you will learn if you ever visit the Ark Encounter in Williamston, Kentucky, with their 500-foot replica of Noah's Ark. I've never been there. Maybe someday I will. And in some ways, I find this approach, the young earth creation approach, grand and inspiring. Because, you know, there are more than 10,000 species of birds, and I can imagine God in the blink of an eye just handcrafting each one of them. And I can imagine God with a divine whistle creating canines with their ability to be morphed into hundreds of different breeds. And I can picture God instantly creating a, a peach tree loaded with, with, with fruit because he knew how much I would enjoy eating a fresh, ripe peach, fuzz and all. But science presents us with some challenges to that line of thinking, to believing in a, a young earth. Geologists have discovered rocks in Canada that they believe are 4 billion years old. That radio dating and all that stuff. Uh, they've discovered minerals in Australia uh, they, they've tested to be 4.3 billion years old. Moon rocks they've collected on the moon, brought back, uh, dated to at least 4.4 billion years old. And, and that's why geologists tell us that uh, the Earth is probably around 4.5 billion years old. What do you think? And then, what about dinosaurs? I mean, if we live on a young earth, then dinosaurs must have coexisted with humans even before Jurassic Park. Some people read about an animal described in the Old Testament, and they think, oh, that must have been a dinosaur. And all of this ur adds urgency to our question. Does the Bible really tell us when the earth was created? We do know this. Genesis 1 was not written by a scientist, and the original readers were not scientifically-minded people. You know, in this series, one of the things that we've been uh, mentioning from time to time is that the Bible was written for us. It was written for us, but it wasn't written to us. It was written to an ancient people, and God did not think it important at the time to give them a science lesson. He did not give them a periodic, periodic chart of the elements. He did not give them an astronomy lesson. He didn't even tell them that the earth was a sphere. But he did tell them exactly what they needed to know. And they learned of God's reign over heaven and earth. Some uh, Bible scholars believe that Genesis 1 could have been used as a worship liturgy for an annual ceremony to celebrate God's lordship over all things. You know, when I was in college at Nebraska Wesleyan, our, our choir sang this really inspiring uh, rendition of Genesis 1. And, and it seemed to me maybe that's how Genesis 1 was meant to be experienced, as a poem or a song. And we hear its, its poetic refrain. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. 
and so on for each of the day. And five times we hear the repetition of the line, and God saw that it was good. And we hear the symmetrical structure. In the first three days, uh, God cre- the environments were created, the heavens, the skies, the, the seas, the land. In days four, five, and six, God sets in place inhabitants for those environments. The sun, moon, and stars inhabit the heavens. God fills the, 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 the seas with fish and the skies with birds that fly. And God populates the land with livestock and insects and wild animals and humans appointed to govern his creation. This summer, I read a a couple of books by Dr. John H. Walton, who's a professor of Old Testament at Wheaton College, also a historian of the ancient Near East. And I see his name and works mentioned often by other scholars that I highly respect and He has opened my eyes to an approach to reading Genesis 1 that maybe is perhaps the way the ancient Israelites read it. You know, the first verse of the Bible, maybe you know this one by heart, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's like the introduction to the chapter, like saying, okay, this is what this chapter is going to be about. Now, in our time, when we read Genesis chapter 1, Our go-to assumption is that God is creating something out of nothing. We assume that before Genesis 1, nothing existed, that there was only God, and God is bringing the cosmos into existence. Classical Christianity uh, has a Latin term for that, ex nihilo. It means out of nothing. And that's what we assume Genesis 1 is about. God is creating something out of thin nothing. And the word created um, is translated from the Hebrew word barach. And if you say it like a Klingon, you're close. Barach. What does it mean? Well, Walton says that when we modern people think of creating, we assume that it means uh, bringing something into material existence. It now has molecules, and it takes up space. But Walton says in ancient times, they didn't think of existence like that. Something existed only when it had a function, when it had a role to play. And he says throughout the, uh, the Old Testament, Barach uh, points not to creating something's material existence, but to creating its functional existence. And right now you're going, oh, my goodness, what is he talking about? You know, when I read those books, I I was having a hard time grasping. What does this exactly mean? So I want to try to convey this for you as as best I can. First off, let me say, though, that the people originally reading Genesis 1 believed that God was responsible for the material universe, okay? But they may not have thought that that's what Genesis 1 is about, that maybe it is telling us a different story. Well, after the introduction in verse 1, verse 2 tells us that the earth already existed materially. Let's see what it says. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God 
was hovering over the waters. So before God starts his creating work, there's already an earth, though formless and empty. There are deep, dark waters. And the word formless uh, also means that it's unproductive, non-functioning, without order. It's not yet ready for the purpose God intends. You see, the ancient people did not see God as an inventor who created a machine. That, that would be a real modern understanding of God. They viewed God as a king who gave order to a kingdom so it could function properly. Walton uh, also offers a metaphor, and I, I've kind of expanded it here a little bit for you. Let's say that you buy a restaurant. Any of you ever been restaurant owners? Anybody? None? Okay. And you buy this restaurant... And it's, it's got everything you need, a grill, ovens, tables, chairs, even has a walk-in cooler, walk-in freezer, already filled with food. So the restaurant exists, right? It exists materially, but it does not yet exist functionally. It has no name, no menu, no chef, no wait staff. So you come up with a name. You create a menu. You hire a staff. Good luck with that. You know, if I were starting a restaurant, I would call it Great Plains Pizza. Huh? Nice ring to it. Uh, Great Plains Pizza could rival Chicago pizza and New York pizza. Well, now you have a functioning restaurant, right? Not quite. You still need to get a permit from the city authorizing you to cook and serve food to the public. So you get your permit and you, you post it on the wall and, and then you have to unlock your doors and people have to come in and eat. This restaurant, which already existed materially, now exists functionally. Genesis 1 is about God getting the world ready for its grand opening. God gives names uh, to, to things and, and to, to identify their roles and functions. He even sets his hours. He calls the light day and the darkness night. Naming things. That's part of defining their, their functional existence. Now, if you were getting your restaurant ready, you would recognize that the layout is going to be really important, Right? So even if you didn't need any new equipment or anything, uh, there's still a lot of work to do because you're going to have to separate the spaces. Okay, the kitchen's going to go here. We'll put the dining room over there. And you separate the place. Okay, the raw food's here, and then the, the cooked food's there, and then the clean dishes go here, and the dirty dishes go over there. You separate them. And we see God doing that kind of thing in Genesis 1. God separates light from the darkness separates the waters above from the waters below, uh, separates the land from the sea. So these things are already present, but in Genesis 1, he names them, separates them, and assigns them their function. God's in charge, and he's getting everything ready. I mean, this is the story that he wants to tell. God knows that this is what the people need to hear most. 
You know, if Genesis 1 had been a story about God materially creating the stars, then uh, God could have said that, uh, that these are going to be giant balls of hydrogen atomically fusing to make helium. But that description would have made no sense to them, to these ancient Israelites. So Genesis 1 assigns function to the stars as it relates to people. It says, let them, that is the stars, let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years. Five times in, in the chapter, uh, it says that God saw his creation was good. What does that mean, that it was good? I mean, good can mean a lot of things, right? It was good to look at. It was good enough. It was morally good, maybe. But if you follow this uh, idea of the functional understanding of Genesis 1, Walton says that it is good may mean that it is functioning properly. Uh, according to the pur purpose that God gave it. The ancient Israelites would very easily have read the six days of creation uh, as God preparing it so that he could take up residence on the seventh day. And this is what ancient kings and gods did then. You know, we go to the book of Exodus, and, and after, you remember that tent temple called the tabernacle that the Israelites, you know, God gave them the plans, told them how to build it. And, and so after they built it, uh, there was a seven-day consecration for it. And ending with, you know, the glory of God in the form of a cloud filling the tabernacle. So on that, that, on that seventh day, God came to dwell with his people. A few centuries later, Solomon's workers spent seven years building the, the, the physical temple, the building. And when the material work was finished, it was still not yet a temple. The elders brought the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem during a week-long festival in the early autumn. And they offered sacrifices to the Lord on the altar all week long. And then, the last day, the priests carried the Ark of the Covenant into the most holy place in the temple. And on that seventh day, as with the tabernacle, a thick cloud representing the glory of God filled the building. Now it was truly a temple. And so the early Israelites would have read Genesis 1 like one of those temple ceremonies. Pastor and author Dan Kimball says that uh, when God rests on the seventh day, it isn't because he's tired. Kimball says, it is more like an American president who goes through an inauguration process and at the end takes up residence or rests in this White House. His work and duties are just beginning. And he isn't actually sleeping or resting. He is now in place to run the show. God is now running things after taking up residence in his temple, the heavens and the earth. Like I said before, the Bible was written for us 
but it was not written to us. It was written to the early Israelites, and, and as best we can, we need to try to understand it from their point of view. So, if Genesis 1 is more about functional creation than material creation, and if it's written by pre-scientific people for pre-scientific people, and if it's written with a poetic structure for liturgical use, and if it tells a story of God preparing a place to dwell with us, then, and this is my conclusion, I would not look to Genesis 1 for information on the age of the earth because I don't believe that's what it's about. As I've said a number of times in the, in the past, whatever you believe about how God created the universe, that's up to you. I'm fine. If you believe that God uh, created it all in six 24-hour days, I'm fine with that. If you believe that each day was millions or billions of years, I'm, I'm okay with that. If you believe that evolution was God's plan to create all the life forms on the earth, I'm fine with that too. But the main message of Genesis remains, this is God's creation. This is our Father's world. And we also believe that one day God is going to restore everything on heaven and earth, going to reunite them. And, and, you know, Genesis is the first book of the Bible. Revelation is the last book of the Bible, and it gives us a glimpse of that day. Chapter 21, verse 3 says this, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. So now the story comes full circle, doesn't it? What began in Genesis, derailed for a time, is now finally coming to pass. Let's pray. Dear God, help us to read the Bible as it was meant to be read. Lord, we confess that it's easy for us to bring our, our modern assumptions to the, to the scriptures, uh, to, to lay over it our own expectations. And yet, Lord, we need your word. We, we need to be fed and nourished by the word of God. So give us wisdom, Lord, to read it properly, to understand it well. Give us a hunger to meet you in its pages. And now will you join with me in the prayer that Jesus taught? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. 
For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let's stand.